Good afternoon, and welcome back to the Revelation Power Podcast. I'm author and host Kevin Hopkins, and today we continue our discussion in Romans chapter 5, sorry, in Romans chapter 5, and we're going to pick up where we left off in verse 9. So verse 8 said, this is how we know, uh, or this is how God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9 just picks that thought right up. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So again, kind of a densely packed little three verses that have to do everything with what Christ has accomplished for us in his death on the cross. So he has, Paul has extensively argued, and I would say established, that Christ's death on the cross is the expiation. It is the expiating sacrifice. And that's that kind of big theological word, not the biggest one yet, but it's kind of a big 10 cent theological word that says God's wrath has been averted, almost diverted. It has been detoured around us. It doesn't mean that God's wrath is gone. It just means that for this time, because of an expiating sacrifice, or because of an expiation, we won't be punished. That's why you see that the Jews had to bring their sacrifice anytime they sinned, at least if it was kind of a major sin. And all the little ones piled up for the year, and then once a year they would bring their annual sacrifice. And once a year the priest would offer a big sacrifice for all the sins of all the people. And so that could either be a bull, uh, which was the big, big sacrifice, or at Passover, they sacrificed a lamb. And that blood then represented the blood that was spread on the doorposts of the homes of the Israelites in Egypt so that the destroyer would pass them over and not take the life of their first child. That's an expiation. It isn't that firstborn are not going to die tonight. It's that those whose doorposts are marked by the blood will not lose their firstborn tonight. The judgment will pass over them. That's why it's called Passover. It doesn't mean that God's done judging. It doesn't mean that your firstborn won't be in danger on account of your own failures, sins, and disobediences in the future. It means today the judgment will pass over your household. The expiation sacrifice said, for this sin, the judgment will be put off. For this year, 
the judgment will be avoided, averted, diverted one more time. But it's still accrued to your account. You didn't have to make the the principal payment, but the interest was still accruing. The wrath was still building up. In order to be a just God, that justice had to be satisfied at some point. And, And the only way that justice could ultimately be satisfied is if you, not the animal, but you paid the price. Eventually, that judgment had to come down on you because you're the one who committed the sin. You're the one who committed the failure. You're the one who was disappointing. You're the one who fell short. Ultimately, in order to be just, you would have to bear the penalty for your own sin. Each person would. And year after year after year after year after year, the expiation put that judgment on hold. Paul says, since we have been justified by the blood of Christ, and that justification is found innocent when we should have been found guilty. We have been found to be just when we know we are not just. We are not deserving of that verdict. But we have been justified. Our our failure has been removed from us so that it doesn't accrue to our account. Jesus took it on himself. He took our sins, the Bible says, on himself. He who knew no sin became absolute sin for us. And so he expiated the judgment for that sin. He took that sin away so that we would never again have to stand judgment for that sin. But what about all that wrath of God that was built up over all the sin that humanity had done for all time before that? Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only was our sin forgotten, were we called innocent when we should have been found guilty, and and there's no double jeopardy in in God's court system, that sin will never come back to visit us again. Not only was Christ our expiation, but here's a 15-cent word. He was our propitiation. He was the one who removed the wrath of God from us forever. Since we have now been justified, verse 9, by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You'll notice there's not a question mark there. It's not really a question. It's an exclamation point. It's a celebration. The wrath has been removed from us. How did Jesus accomplish that? 
He took our sins on himself and he died on the cross as the sacrificial lamb for the sins of all the people for all time, the Bible says, once and for all. But in doing so, he not only took our sins upon himself, he took the wrath of God. He took the wrath of the Father, all of it, for all of time, before, during, and after. For every sin, for every bit of wrath that had built up for, for centuries. For every bit of wrath that God had in his heart towards those who were taking Christ's life, or thought they were taking Christ's life, the Bible says he, he was giving it. And all of the wrath for all the sin that would ever come in the future. Christ paid. Christ took all of it. Not part of it. It's not a partial sacrifice. Not some of it. It's not an imperfect work that he's doing on the cross. It is a full and complete and perfect work of grace and forgiveness of expiation and propitiation. He's not only forgiving our sin, he is taking away the wrath of God. And the only way he can do that is to let God drain it out on him. And so he dies. But unlike the sacrificial lamb, unlike the Passover lamb who's being offered at the same moment that Jesus is dying on the cross, that lamb's life is taken. Jesus's life is not taken, it's given. He surrenders his spirit. He gives it up as the wrath pours out on him. He surrenders. How do we treat people who surrender? What does human conscience say we should do to those who surrender? It says we shouldn't murder them, right? They've given up. They've surrendered. When I surrender myself to Christ and confess my sin and, and ask his mercy and forgiveness, my faith says he gives me those things. You see, Jesus models that behavior on the cross. Have you ever seen this before? Jesus is giving up his life. He's giving himself as the sacrifice. God's wrath is poured out on that sacrifice. And in that moment, Jesus surrenders himself. And with a loud shout, he gave up his spirit. He surrendered his spirit. He says, it is finished. And he surrenders. He gives up. He acquiesces. He agrees to be the vessel through which the wrath can be poured out. And he goes into death. I've always wondered why Jesus had to die. I, I want to give you an idea. I can't prove it in scripture. It's my idea. I don't know that it's original. I've probably heard it somewhere along the way. But I agree with it. And it has become my idea because it's what I absolutely believe. People have asked me often, why did God have to come as a person? Why did God have to come as a human being? Why couldn't he have come as God? 
It's the question that that the devil asked Jesus from the high point on the temple. Why can't you just throw yourself down here in front of these people and, and the hand of God will just let you drift right down to the ground and not be harmed and everybody will see that you're the Messiah. Why don't you just show them that you're God? And Jesus doesn't take the bait. He hides from the devil what has to happen, you see. The Bible says that if the princes of this world had known, if the rulers of the age had known how our redemption would come into the world, they never would have let Christ go to the cross. He came as a human because a human had to die. Why did a human have to die? Because that human has to go into the grave has to go into what the Jews called Sheol, that place of waiting. It it has two sides. It has the Hades side, the Gehenna side, where the fire never goes out, the punishment side, and it had the paradise side. Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. In order to get there, He had to die a human death. In order to inhabit that place. Now, his presence could be there as God. God's presence is everywhere. I mean, you think about it. God's presence, if he's omnipresent, it has to be in hell as well. Has to be. Where does God not have a presence? If he doesn't have a presence somewhere, then he doesn't have an omnipresence. So God's presence has to be in hell. That would make it even more torturesome, more undesirable, that you would be in a place where the presence of God was, but you can't access him. You can't talk to him. You can't touch him. You can't be with him. He's that close, but you can't have him and you can't join him. There's also this interesting Catholic doctrine. I think it's a Catholic doctrine. It's certainly an ancient church doctrine. And it's included in one of the creeds, very prominently. The creed that the Catholics recite, their version of the Apostles' Creed. And it says, He was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. And he ascended again. As Protestants, a lot of times we kind of ignore that thought because we don't like it. And 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 scholars debate whether or not Jesus goes to hell to lead captivity captive in his train, as another verse of scripture says, not the same context. So you have to kind of do a little contortion there to make those match. Be aware of that. But it's not a huge contortion. The captivity the fact that humanity was held captive in sin and that Christ breaks the power of sin and leads those captives out into ownership by God himself, into the captivity of eternal life. That's that's a more beautiful picture, but it's, it's not totally out of context to say that he descended to hell, into the grave at least. He goes to that place where every person who's ever died is gone, into death and the grave. And he breaks the power of death 
and the grave. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? They don't have either anymore because Jesus has gone by his human death into the place where all people have gone, the grave, to the Hades, to the paradise, to the place where dead souls go. And he has broken the gate. Peter, you're a rock. You are the rock. And on this faith that you have proclaimed, I will build my church and the gates of hell, Hades, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, wait a minute. Gates are either to keep people out or to keep people in, right? Nobody wants into hell. The gates of hell don't have to prevail against the church to keep us from going there. We don't want to go there. If that gate is not to prevail, it must be from people coming out. From the gospel saving people from that place. Maybe before they ever go there. I guess you could could cast this as people who live in this world are in hell already. And when we're saved, we move from being a citizen of Hades to a citizen of the kingdom and the gate can't stop us. That works for me too. I don't care which way you do this. I think that way makes a lot of sense. But to say that there were people in the grave that Jesus went and freed and got them, and interestingly enough, they they were resurrected with him because Matthew tells us that Many righteous people who died previously were seen walking about in Jerusalem for the next several days. Whoa. We just totally ignore that verse because what do you do with it? It says the resurrection already happened because the Jews were waiting for a resurrection. So those who were those who were resurrected were Jews who'd already died. As a Christian, My judgment happens the moment I hit my knees and confess my sin to Jesus Christ or confess my sin to the Father through Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm a sinner. I stand in absolute deserving of judgment, of death. But I pray and I ask that you would be my Lord and Savior and that my judgment could take place right now with Christ between me and the Father who's judging and that I might be judged in the light of the sacrifice of the cross. What's the hymn say? That God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me? Exactly. In that moment, my judgment is had. I won't face a future judgment as long as I stay in Christ. My judgment's already been had, and I was called innocent because I was hidden in Christ. Now pay attention to the symbolism that we use in the church. That in that moment, I died. To the extent that Paul says, so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But Christ who lives in me. If by one man all died, Adam, then through one man's resurrection, all shall be raised. Yes, yes, but not in the 
clear blue sky in the sweet by and by. No, at the moment that we were saved, we were, we were dead to sin and raised, the Bible says, to new life. In that moment, raised to new life, resurrected. The old is gone. The new has come. The old is gone. The old, earthly, worldly person that deserved judgment is dead and gone. The new, eternal soul that will live in the kingdom of God has come. I have become a citizen of heaven in that moment. I'm not going to need some different body. I have the spiritual body and the spiritual person that I need to be from that moment on. What's our symbolism in baptism? That I died and was buried with Christ and that I was resurrected. Guys, your resurrection, if you're a Christian, your resurrection has already come. They don't have to bury you facing the east. You're not coming up out of that dirt. You don't have to because you're not going into the dirt. Come on. Let's get our language consistent. Let's get our theology consistent. We stand by the grave of people. We lay our hand on the casket and we say, we lay here to the ground only that which came from the ground. And we by faith believe that the Spirit is today with Christ Jesus. If that's true, what's he going to send your spirit back into that body and raise that body up from the ground again? In Minnesota, we called that the Norwegian game. You put something in one place only to go back an hour later and move it back to where it used to be for absolutely no reason at all. God doesn't play the Norwegian game. You were resurrected the moment you were saved to new life in Christ. There is no reason for that dead shell that we buried in the casket. You don't need that. And there is no reason for God to take your incorruptible new body and stick it in that box so that you can come popping up through the dirt facing the east to go up in the sky. Guys, at some times, at some points, our theology is ridiculous. That's ridiculousness. It's way too difficult when the Bible makes it clear that you died at the moment you confessed your sin. And you were raised to new life in Christ. He says to Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Nicodemus says, wait a minute, that's a Norwegian game. I have to crawl back in my mother's womb. I'm a little big for that now. Jesus is like, you're the teacher of Israel. You don't even understand this. It's not born fleshly. It's not born by blood again. It's born by water. The water represents the spirit. It's a birth in the spirit. It's a spiritual birth. You have to be born again spiritually. And then, eternally, you're ready. You're ready. We ask people that all the time. When we know death is approaching, we say, do you feel like you're ready? Do you have peace with God? Are you ready to meet Christ face to face? Yes. If they are in Christ Jesus, they respond, yes, I am ready. And we by faith say, amen, hallelujah, praise the Lord. We believe they are ready. They don't need a different body or a different thing, or they don't have to come back and then go back to God. They don't need to run the Chinese fire drill. They're ready. And in the moment that this life is over on this earth, we believe they're immediately 
The Bible says those who are in Christ Jesus shall not even taste death. Paul says, I pass from this life to the next. I pass from glory into glory. The glory of living in God's creation to the glory of living with God himself. Not even tasting death. That's the, that's the beauty of your salvation. Don't sell it short. I know these are new thoughts. I know you may have to rewind this and listen to it a couple of times. Or you may just stop listening to the podcast altogether and say, that Hopkins, he's a kook. But I challenge you to please dive into the scripture and prove me wrong. Just prove me wrong. If I'm wrong, I'll, I'll take that. And you don't even have to email me and tell me, though people try all the time. But bring the scripture to bear in your life. Dive into the scripture and prove me wrong. Paul goes on, and we'll wrap up with this. He says, Not only is this so, that we have been forgiven, and the wrath has been totally removed, and we have been reconciled with God through Christ. Not only is all of that true, but we also boast an interesting word. Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word boast, we think about that as bragging. I'd like you to kind of reframe that word in your mind when Paul uses it as testifying. Because when I'm very sure of something, I can testify to it with absolute confidence. And when someone testifies to something with absolute confidence, we often say they're boasting, they're bragging. And and athletes say, it's not bragging if you can do it, right? It's not bragging if you can actually produce the thing, if you can actually accomplish it. It's not bragging, it's the truth. That's the context of boast here. Not only is all of this so, but we can with confidence in God through our Lord Jesus Christ proclaim that we have now received reconciliation. Not only has our sin been forgiven and the wrath put off, our relationship with God has been restored. The account has been made right. You ever reconciled your checkbook? Do you reconcile it by your records or by the bank's records? You reconcile it by the bank's records, the authority. Now, you may catch the bank in a mistake hmm, once in your lifetime, if that. I I caught the bank one time in like a 64-cent mistake. But that's the only time that's ever happened. Most of the time, it's a $64 error, and it's mine. Or it's a whole bunch of errors that add up to $64, and they're all mine. In the case of God, his record is perfect. Ours is not. The reconciliation didn't need to come on God's part. He is the authority. He is the set of numbers that is right. We were the ones who were wrong. And yet the Bible says that in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling us to himself. That God was doing the reconciliation of our accounts to himself. You know what that means, right? That means that you've come up 
$64 different than the bank. And the bank says, hmm, well, let's just do this. Let's put $64 in your account and call it even. That would never happen, (laughs) right? That's never going to happen. But that's what reconciliation with God is. What? You've fallen short of my glory? You've fallen short of the ability to come and spend time with me? You've fallen short of being able to have a, a relationship with me? Well, let's do this. Let's credit you the righteousness necessary to come sit at my side, to be my friend, to have a relationship with me. The Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be absolute sin for us so that in him we might become the absolute righteousness of God. That's reconciliation. That's having so much credited to your account that you didn't have coming, that you have no right to be anything but grateful for the rest of eternity. If you have half a brain, if you have any sense at all, you will understand the price that was paid for you was so much more than you could have ever paid. I owe God my life. I owe God my worship. Now, I really enjoy worshiping him. I really enjoy praising him. I can't wait to get to heaven. If we're going to sing especially, I love to sing. I'm ready. Sing for eternity? Doesn't sound boring to me. I'm on board. If I can take a break and go fishing once in a while, I'll sing while I fish. And if they've got guitars, I'll play one. And I'll play it a lot better than I play now. I want to worship him because he saved me. He forgave me. He he removed his wrath from me. And he filled up my righteousness account so that he and I could be on speaking terms, on hugging terms, on friendly terms. So that one day I'll stand before him and he'll look at me. And I know in my case, he's going to smirk and kind of shake his head. And then he's going to say, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. And I will know in my heart that he is crediting me with things that I was not. But that's the immensity of his grace. Am I once saved, always saved? No, I'm not. I could walk away from it at any moment. I am a creature of free will. And if I want to spit in God's face and tell him that that sacrifice on the cross wasn't enough to save my sorry self, I can walk away from it and crucify Christ all over again, the Bible says in Hebrews. And the Bible says that while I'm living like that, I am unsavable. There is no other sacrifice for me. If I can look at the sacrifice of Christ and understand, taste the things of the age to come, sample the goodness of the coming age, that means I understood it and I partook in it, and then walk away from it, there remains no sacrifice for my sin, and I remain unsavable. The Bible says these words, while to their shame, they crucify the Son of glory all over again by saying it wasn't enough. you got to die some more, Jesus, in order for it to save me. 
Can I walk away? Yes, I'm not once saved, always saved. But only a fool would do such a thing. Only an absolute idiot would partake of grace and understand the weight of their sin and judgment and understand the glory of the righteousness that God has credited to them and then turn away? You'd have to be either really foolish or really, really hurt. And I think the heart of God is such that he would understand if in a moment of deep pain you yelled at him, the psalmist does it all the time, and threatens to walk away and blames God for being untrue to his word. But the psalmist always comes back with a statement of faith. My God is very patient, and if you spit in his face, he will smile on you and love you and let you go your way and and wait for you to come back. And at the first sign that you're coming back, he will rush to meet you like the prodigal son's father. But, but please don't. Please, please don't turn away. And if you're listening to this by some odd chance, and there's come a time in your life when you've said, Lord, I, I just can't do this Christian thing, and you've walked away, come on back. Understand the immensity of the grace that God is willing to pour out on you. Even grace for this time that you've spit in his face and said, no, I'm not doing this. He still has forgiveness for that. He still has grace for that. He will still top you off with the very righteousness of Christ so that you and he can have a relationship, a good one, an eternal one. Don't walk away. Please don't walk away. If you're a Christian and you're under great testing right now, I've been there. I know how hard it is to believe that God loves me when everything is going wrong, when everything is falling apart, when nothing I thought was solid is solid, and I fall, and I fall, and I fall, and I fall, and I finally hit what I believe is rock bottom. My friend, I turned around, and I hammered my fist into rock bottom and it wasn't a rock it was the palm of his hand he had caught me oh I had fallen a long long way but he caught me that was the promise I would not fall further than he could reach me when I thought all hope was lost he reached me And he stopped me right there. Then he had to motivate me to climb back again because I didn't want to. I wanted to stay right there. I couldn't fall any further than that. Nothing could ever go wrong again if I just stayed on the bottom. I said, no, Lord, I'm not climbing anymore. Not by my effort, not by my charm, not by my abilities, not by my talents. If I'm to ever be any higher than this, you'll just have to lift me because I'm not leaving this place. And guys, I felt God smile. I finally understood what I had missed for 50 years of my life. That it isn't about me. It isn't about my talents or my abilities. It isn't that I have to use them or I lose them. It isn't that he expects me to to spend them and invest them and, and increase them for him. 
It's that he expects me to trust him. If the guys in the parable of the talents had gone out and invested them and totally lost them, he would not have punished those guys because they were trusting what he gave them to bear fruit. And if it didn't, that's not their responsibility. The only guy that he judges in that story is the guy who comes back and says, I knew you were unjust. That you that you reaped where you haven't harvested and you, and you gathered where you hadn't spread. There's no evidence in the story at all that that's true. God is only getting back what's his and then entrusting a big chunk of the of the produce of the of the of the benefit back to the people that that created it. There's nothing in the story to to indicate that he's an unjust master. No, that servant has no faith in that master. That's why he gets judged. Please don't be a faithless servant. I understand if it's hard. Let me encourage you to cry out to God. And if it feels like rock bottom, well, test it and see if it's not the hand of God that's holding you up, that has kept you from total collapse. I could have easily fallen to the point that I despaired for my own life, but I did not because God didn't let me fall that far. And if you've fallen that far that you're beginning to despair for your own life, God has not let you fall so far that you've taken it. Trust him. Trust him, please. Turn to him and have faith. Come home. Come home. He has forgiven your sin. He has put off his wrath. And he he is willing to pour into you of his righteousness to make up any deficit so that you can be his friend and have a relationship with him forever. Come home.